Good morning, church. It's a beautiful day to be in God's house. Thank you for being here. We're going to be reading Nehemiah 7 today, all of Nehemiah 7. Uh, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles and bear with me as I struggle through this passage with all these names. And a little trick that I learned recently um, in basic training, when you are standing for long periods of time, don't lock your knees. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to pray really quickly. Uh, I'm a little nervous and praying before helps, so just bow your heads and pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this day, another day of life. Thank you for bringing us all together. And Lord, as I go into your word this morning, I pray that you would just fill me with your power and strength. Help me to um, just read clearly and calmly, Lord, as we listen, incline our hearts to your testimony. Open our eyes to see the beauty of your word. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy our souls this morning with your steadfast love. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge of Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramah, Nehamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizparek, Bigvai, Nahum, Bain. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Harosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephtiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Kaha, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Binu, 648, the sons of Babai, 628, the sons of Zagah, 2,322, the sons of Adonaikim, 667, the sons of Bigvai, 2,067, the sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Atter, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bazai, 324, the sons of Harak, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Notuk, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asma, 42. The men of Kirith Jerim, Chaphira and Barak, 743. The men of Rama and Giba, 621. The men of Mi'kmaq, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. 
sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hated, and Onah, 721, the sons of Sinai, 3,930, the priests, the sons of Jedi, namely the house of Jeshua, 973, sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Pasher, 1,247, the sons of Haram, 1,017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, of the sons of Odeva, 740, I mean 74, excuse me. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalem, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talman, the sons of Echab, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesaphah, the sons of Tobawath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Hadon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagaba. The sons of Shalami, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Geher, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Rizina, Rizin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazm, Gazam, the sons of Uza, the sons of Pesa, the sons of Azai, the sons of Munim, the sons of Nefeshushashim, the sons of Bakfa, the sons of Hakfa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bizleth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barcos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neza, the sons of Hatipha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Satai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Purda, the sons of Jalah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephtai, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Hocherith, Hazavim, the sons of Amon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. They could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Delai, the sons of Tobai, the sons of Nehoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobai, the sons of Hakos, the sons of Verzilla, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Verzilla, the Gilead. Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury the work, 20,000 derricks of gold, and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 meters of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads and Lord, you are holy, and your word is holy. Your name is powerful, and your, your name is uh, only, let's say this. Um, 
Lord, every um, verse of the Bible is is true and uh, powerful and uh, for the teaching and preaching. Uh, Lord, we confess that we do not read um, too much, uh, so much of the Old Testament, mm. and passages like this are difficult, and we do not uh, put enough time into understanding it, and they are hard. Um, so, Lord, we uh, thank you that we have teachers that can expound on this. We uh, pray for um, uh, Alden as he's about to open the word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you um, open our minds to understanding, uh, give us context um, to this, uh, the Old Testament uh, uh, time uh, for our present time, and that uh, all, all people uh, would understand it uh, and take something from this uh, passage. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Can you hear me? Is my mic on right now? Not yet. Not yet. Well, thank you, Lauren and Keith. Let's give a round of applause. That was awesome. Well, my name is Alden. Welcome to Mercy House. Okay, Mercy House kids. That's a good reminder. There they are. Thank you, Mercy House Kids teachers. And thank you, Mercy House Kids. Pax gave me the fist bump. That was sick. But welcome, Mercy House Kids, as well. And welcome, everyone. So we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. And as you just heard, this text is admittedly pretty meticulous and long. And it's basically a list of names. So that might feel silly to, to read that and listen to that, but as Keith was even just mentioning in his prayer, uh, 2 Timothy tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so I want to encourage us to take care about a text like this, to hear it just as much as we would hear about any passage. Paul writes to Timothy about the Old Testament in the verse just before the one that Keith quoted. It's 2 Timothy 3.15, and that will be on the screens here. Paul says to Timothy, this is about the Old Testament. From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, that's the Old Testament at the time that the New Testament was being written. The only sacred writings were the Old Testament, right? So that's what all scriptures God breathes. He's talking about the Old Testament. It applies to the New as well, but here we are. Those sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so... Let's pray this morning that God would increase our wisdom for salvation in Christ this morning. Lord, um, thank you for this text. We admit that on its face, it's hard to understand. But God, we also recognize that this text is among the sacred writings which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So God, make us more wise in yourself this morning and teach us about yourself this morning. And let us take it home and apply it and live out our faith more for you because of Nehemiah chapter 7. In your name we pray, amen. So maybe some important events from the Old Testament that have led up to this. Maybe you're new here, maybe you're not that familiar with the Old Testament. Here's a couple of highlights. This isn't so much a summary as much as some highlights that are going to be helpful for us understanding what's going on here. Abraham is the person who gets one of the first covenants from God in Genesis 12, in the Abrahamic covenant. God says he's going to bless Abraham's descendants, and he's going to give them the promised land. That covenant is later reiterated to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob. 
Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's where we get Israelites. They're descendants from Jacob. And then King David himself descends from Jacob or Israel. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you're curious to look later, that's where God articulates the Davidic covenant. He makes a covenant to David in the same way they made to David's fathers. He says, David, I'm going to establish my kingdom through you. And David, there will come a time where your enemies will never afflict your people again. And there will be an eternal king over my kingdom who is from your lineage. So David's covenant is more specific than the other ones. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds the first temple in Jerusalem. But then later, Babylon sacks Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. The city is destroyed. And so those Israelites are put in exile for 70 years in Babylon. But then after those 70 years, Persia defeats Babylon. And that's where Ezra chapter 1 begins is with the Persian king telling the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. So that's where our story starts. And originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were just one book. It's fine that they're divided into two books now. They're from two different narrators' perspectives, but I think that's helpful to know. It's, it's one continuous story between Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we need to know about that overarching story of the book that we're in, I know Tommy gave a summary of Nehemiah, but as far as Ezra goes, we're going to need to know that there was a first wave of returnees from exile who went back to Jerusalem after exile when God called them to rebuild the temple. That first wave was led by a man named Zerubbabel. He's a key figure in our text this morning. Zerubbabel is outlined in Ezra chapter 2, and he leads the first wave of exiles back to build the temple. Wave 2 is led by Ezra. That's articulated in the book of Ezra chapter 7. And then wave 3 happens still later than wave 2. Wave 2 happened after wave 1. Wave 3 happened about 100 years later, and that's led by Nehemiah. And we've seen that in Nehemiah 2. Nehemiah asks the king, can I go to fix it, the walls? And the king says, yes. So we have wave 1 led by Zerubbabel. Wave 2 led by Ezra later. And then even later than that, wave 3 by Nehemiah. And now where we are in our story, Tommy just touched upon chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 last week. And what happened there is the wall got finished, Nehemiah did it, and guards had been set for the gates and within the city. Because it needed to be protected because it was vulnerable and mostly empty. And as we've been reading, there's a lot of enemies to the city of Jerusalem at this time in Nehemiah. And now we're launching into our text here. Verse 5. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, they're under your seats. I encourage you to read along because I'll be highlighting different verses and stuff. And so it'll be helpful for you to be able to follow along with me. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5 reads this. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. So... Then my God put it into my heart. God is prompting Nehemiah to do this. God wants him to do this. And he wants him to, quote, assemble the nobles and the officials and the people. God wants Nehemiah to assemble everybody. Now, verse 66 tells us there were 42,000 people or so in this first wave. And then Ezra came with a second and Nehemiah with a third. And so there's a lot of people that need to be organized. Long story short. And God wants them to be enrolled by genealogy. Genealogies were common among the Israelites. There are many chapters in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, entirely dedicated to, to genealogies. First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9, is 
entirely 100% just a genealogy from Adam to current day chronicles. Talk about thorough, talk about meticulous. You glad we didn't read that one this morning? Nine chapters of that? Maybe we'll do it. Anyway, um, the reason for that is this. They needed to know that they were descendants of the promised line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or in other words, Israel, and David. The Jews of Nehemiah's day were actually holding on to those promises, partly because in the Davidic covenant, God said he's going to protect them from their enemies, and they were in enemy territory. They had just been captured by their enemies. They were in exile. They were looking forward to having a kingdom that was not able to be defeated and attacked by their enemies, and they had been attacked. Now, for us as New Testament believers, we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these promises because he did descend from Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and David. But the only reason that we know that is because faithful and hopeful Old Testament believers kept their genealogies from Adam to Jesus. So at this point, the Israelites were waiting and they were writing genealogies, and Nehemiah is no exception. So Nehemiah finished Jerusalem's wall, and now he needs to fill it with authentic Israelites, people who would have the authentic promises of God. And so Nehemiah takes account of the people he has before him, the mass of all three of the waves that have come. And he pulls out an older document from the first wave, so that would have been about 100 years before Nehemiah's time, that was under Zerubbabel, to compare the three waves he has to the first wave, and he uses that as a standard to enroll them in genealogy. Second half of verse 5 reads this, And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found written in it. So that came up at first, that's the first wave. It's worth noticing that Ezra chapter 2 is basically identical to Nehemiah 7, recording those who went to Jerusalem at the first, in the first wave. Now, neither Ezra nor Nehemiah created the list originally, because both of them arrived after the first wave, Ezra in the second, Nehemiah in the third. But they both include it for their own purposes. And for Nehemiah, this chapter is a moment where he interrupts his narrative. He was building the wall, right? And then he looks back on what happened before, what happened in the past. And this list, this, look, this list that he looks back on, shows continuity with the old Israelites in two significant ways. Number one, pretty obvious, genealogies show that they were literally related, so that, that would connect them. But number two, and I think this is less obvious, this is something I learned in my studying of the passage. Throughout the Old Testament, similar lists are often recorded to establish God's people immediately after times of exile. For example, after the exodus from Egypt, the first census is recorded as they're about to enter the promised land. That's Numbers chapter one. By the way, that's the same land that Nehemiah just built the wall in. Later, in Joshua 18 and 19, once they've taken the promised land, after not having it for many years, they recorded another genealogy. And now, in Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah just finished Jerusalem's wall in the promised land, and God tells him to record a genealogy, the promised land that God originally promised to Abraham. So what God is saying here, by putting it in Nehemiah's heart to enroll the people in genealogy, he's saying, hey, in the same way that throughout history you've been in exile and then I've established you, so I'm also doing now. So here's the document Nehemiah found, starting in verse 6. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. 
So in other words, these are the people originally from Jerusalem and Judah who went into exile because of Babylon and then who came back after exile. And in the second half of verse 6, they returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. So they started resettling more or less where those families lived about 70 years before. Some in the city of Jerusalem itself and some in the surrounding towns. Now let's look at verse 7. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramia, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpareth, Bigphi, Nahum, Banah. So these are the leaders of the first wave. And the leader of those leaders is Zerubbabel, who we've talked about. Jeshua was the high priest at the time, Zerubbabel's sidekick. But this name, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah than the narrator of the book. And we know that because the narrator of this book came in the third wave. That was Nehemiah chapter 2, not the first with Zerubbabel. So it's a different Nehemiah. And same thing with Mordecai, similar thing. This is not the man from the book of Esther because that man lived much later than this list was recorded. Now, throughout this list, we're going to find a lot of just common Hebrew names of common people, normal and average, faithful believers. That's going to be a big theme of our text this morning. So before we dive into um, the nitty-gritty of the list of names, to give an outline of chunks of what this list contains. Verse 7 starts off with just the normal people of Israel. Verse 39 gives us the priests. The paragraph of verse 43 gives us the Levites. The paragraphs with verses 46 and 57 give us various temple servants. And then verse 61, that paragraph gives us the unverified Israelites. And so before we dive into that, I want to talk about a distinction between priests and Levites. Priests are a specific type of Levite. Now, Levites are descended from Levi. They staffed the temple. Numbers 18, 20 through 24 tells us that. And all Levites lived off of tithes from the other tribes of Israel. They didn't earn their own money. Others supplied it for them by way of donation, really. And so the priests were, they were Levites, but they were specific Levites. They were specifically descendants of this later Levite, Aaron. And their specific staff role in the temple was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and to teach the people. Malachi 2, among other places, talks about that. And, but it was only descendants of Aaron who were allowed to be priests. Numbers 3.10 tells us that. So we have priests who are a specific type of Levite. And again, before we dive into this list, I want us to take a step back and recognize these exiles who came back at first took a huge step of faith. I mean, imagine that we were in their shoes for a moment. Imagine you were in their shoes for a moment. You got kicked out of your home by enemies. So you migrate somewhere else in exile. You find a new place to live. You find a new job. You build a house. You have children. You have grandchildren. You make new roots. Seventy years go by, and God tells you to pack up and move and rebuild his old city so that his people can worship him properly. There's no guarantee of job security. In fact, there's not really an existing economy there yet. There's nobody who's really living there. There's also no guarantee that Jerusalem is even safe. In fact, Nehemiah was threatened multiple times. It was not safe. Would we be willing to do that? Would you be willing to do that? Some of us will be called to do something like this in our lives. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us will need to move in order to, for example, spread the gospel overseas, where there is very little gospel witness. 
Now, you might not be called to that, I recognize. But for a moment, whether or not we are called to uproot our lives like that, I want to ask us this morning, would we be willing to do that if God called us to do that? For a moment, let's not hide behind, well, I know I'm not called to, so I don't have to think about it. Well, called or not, would you be willing to? This is a question for me as much as for you. As my wife and I pray about our future, and it's come up, like, oh, maybe we should consider translating the Bible overseas. We're asking ourselves, oof, are we willing to do that? So I'm asking this question with you, but I do want to encourage you to ask it with me. Would we be willing to pack up our bags and go somewhere like this? So here's the people. Verse 7, the second half of verse 7. The number of the men of the people of Israel. So all these are verifiably descendants of Israel. They're listed sometimes by family, and then later in the list, they're listed by the region they're coming from. Many of these names really only occur in lists in Ezra and Nehemiah. They were not famous. They were just faithful. And notice, it's average Israelite people who are listed before the priests and the Levites, the professionals, the leaders, the teachers. That's true for both the proven list of Israelites in this paragraph and those who could not initially prove their Israelite descent in verse 61. The Israelites are listed before the professionals, the leaders. Another thing to notice is the numbers in this first group in verses 8 to 38, they make up 80% of the entire named list. So the point I'm making here is that the kingdom of God consists mostly of normal average, faithful people of God. It's not mostly leaders. The only reason there are some leaders at all, and some teachers at all, in the first place, is for the normal people. Don't get me wrong, good leaders and good teachers are important, but a central part of even the glory of God's kingdom is just how massive it is and how many faithful people that God has made to be faithful, how many of those people are in it. That's a huge part of what makes it glorious. Revelation chapter 7, this will be on your screens. In verses 9 through 10, talks about this. This is a vision that the apostle John gets from Jesus. It's a vision of heaven. And it says this, John says this, After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Crying out with a loud voice, one voice, this massive amount of people that no one can number with one voice. That's glorious and epic, isn't it? That's the kingdom of God. And it's normal, average, faithful believers that it consists of. And like these people recorded in Nehemiah 7, you personally, along with them personally, you personally are part of why heaven is so glorious. So let's look at these specific people who were a part of that. Verse 8, the sons of Parash, 2,172, a relatively large family compared to the others. Verse 9, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, a common Israelite name. Verse 10, the sons of Arah, 652. Now one of Arah's grandsons, Jehohanan, he was bound by oath to Tobiah, one of Nehemiah's enemies, if we remember from last week. Tommy covered that in Nehemiah 6.18. But I bring this up to say this family brought some drama and some tension into the city. Maybe we'd call them messy people, right? The sons of Arah. Verse 11, the sons of Pahath, Moab, 
namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. Seems like these two families dwelt together in the same region, producing a larger group. The sons of Alam, 1,254. That's a common Hebrew name. There's even two different families with this same name on this list. Verse 34 says the other Alam. Verse 13 says the sons of Zetu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. These four families are just regular size, and their names only occur in Ezra Nehemiah in the whole Bible. Verse 17, the sons of Asgad, 2,322, a particularly big family compared to the others. Verse 18, the sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, a big family, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Atom, namely of Hezekiah, 98. Now this Hezekiah is different than King Hezekiah. His father was Ahaz, 2 Kings 18.1 tells us that. And he also lived 150 years before this genealogy was recorded. 98 people, small family. Verse 22, the sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bazai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. And then we transition into what seems like regions that these people are coming from. Verse 25, the sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netapha, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kariath Jerem, Kephara, and Biroth, 743. Verse 30. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. Verse 33. The men of the other Nebo, 52. Verse 34. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, verse 37, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, and then verse 38, the largest family of all, of everyone on this list, the sons of Sana, 3,930. Most of these people are just normal, average people. For most of them, all we know in the whole Bible about them is just their name, that they faithfully moved to Jerusalem, and how many went with them here in this list. Seemingly, they just kept their heads down and lived a quiet, faithful life. Some had big families, some had small families. Some of them, like Aras, grandson Jehohanan, were prone to conflict and produced strife in the city, just like you and I do sometimes. These are normal people. But these average people are important enough to God that God makes a monument of them here in Nehemiah 7. And you and I, normal people just like these, who will probably never be famous, probably our great-great-grandchildren won't know our names, but those people along with us have a permanent place of memory and honor in God's kingdom. That's encouraging. Our lives aren't worthless. God notices us permanently. Verse 39. The priests... The sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. Now some of these families have actually traced their family line through 400 years. That is 16 generations of time. First Chronicles 24 is the first time a number of these priestly names show up. So they were very meticulous about this. 
And again, it was because they needed to be. In particular, the priests, the sons of Aaron, needed to be. There was a steep price for attempting the priesthood without being a true son of Aaron. Numbers 3.10 tells us that if you tried to be a priest and you weren't actually a descendant of Aaron, you would just die. So this was serious. It's worth recording. It's worth recording a genealogy to make sure. Something to note here, when you add the total number of priests in verses 39 to 42 and compare it to the grand total of returnees in verse 66, about 42,000, we find that just these four priestly families make up an entire 10% of the entire returning population. That's peculiarly many priests to come. And I think the reason that so many priests came compared to everybody else is because they were literally born to be priests, descendants of Aaron, right? But they never got to fully serve in that capacity without the temple until this point. I mean, you can't offer sacrifices with no temple, right? But they were sons of Aaron. They were literally born for this. And now their moment has come. And the temple is being built. And they can do what they were born to do. And so they show up in flying collars. And so, by way of application, I want to invite you, especially if you're new here, to Mercy House. Like these priests from many years ago, I want to invite you to come eagerly step into church life and use your gifts to serve God and bless this place and these people. Let's worship God together in eagerness like these priests. A few practical ways you could do that. You could join the audiovisual team back there. Hello, audiovisual team. They always need help, and they're often shorthanded, and they could use extra hands. So maybe that's a way you could serve. Mercy House kids, you just saw them getting dismissed downstairs. V is often shorthanded on people to help disciple those kids during the uh, morning service. There are work days that Luke Showalter heads up. That's been a blessing for me as I've been a part of those to help take care of the building. You can cook meals for people when people are pregnant or people get sick. We often have little like Google spreadsheets that you get shared online. You can sign up for a day if you can cook. Maybe that's something you could do. Maybe some bigger ones are restarting a youth group is a hope that we have since JD's left. We haven't been able to do that. We've been a little short-handed. Maybe you want to be a deacon and sign up in a more, more or less official capacity. Luke Showalter is our only deacon. He would love some help. Those are some practical ways that you're able to eagerly get involved here at Mercy House if you desire to. Now, I also want to acknowledge that not everyone has a capacity to do all sorts of these things. We go through various seasons of life when sometimes we need to take steps back and sometimes we need to take steps into more service or less service. There's time and place for everything and I just want to honor that for you. And so I, I want that to be said. And at the same time, I do want to extend an invite to those who feel called. Come, eagerly get involved here at Mercy House. Let's serve together at Mercy House. I would love to do that with you. Let's keep going. Verse 43. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, the sons of Hadeva, 74. This is very few Levites. There's only one very small family of Levites who returned. And the Levites, as we mentioned before, they're the temple staff. So without them, temple activities don't happen. In fact, a special search had to be done for Levites to get involved in temple life in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra literally went around looking for Levites. Are there any here? 
But if I was a Levite at the time, I think I understand. I think I would be tempted to do the same thing. I wouldn't want to serve as a Levite. The Israelites regularly neglected to give them the tithes that they were due. And remember, that's how they made their income. They didn't have normal jobs like the rest of the 11 tribes. The Levites were paid by tithes by the rest of the people. So I could understand if the Levites were sick of being financially neglected. That even happened in Nehemiah 13. After all these reforms, in the last chapter of the book, after all this work gets done, the Levites get neglected. And they have to go work in the fields. Because the Israelites quit giving them their tithes. That's contrary to God's plan. The result was, evidently, very few of them wanted to do it. Now, also, by way of application, if you can relate to the Levites here, maybe you feel neglected, maybe you are neglected. I do want to say, the behavior of the Israelites toward the Levites was terrible and unacceptable and selfish. And when Nehemiah found out that the Levites were being neglected, he did not rebuke the Levites for going and working in the fields, even though that wasn't God's plan for them. That was contrary to his design. He rebuked the Israelite people for neglecting the Israelites for, sorry, he rebuked the Israelite people for neglecting the Levites and forcing the Levites into that situation. So, if you have been neglected, and you ought to have been better cared for, my encouragement to you is not to suck it up and serve anywhere. That wasn't Nehemiah's encouragement to the Levites. My encouragement to you is to tell someone about that that you trust, who can help you heal, so that situation can be dealt with, whatever that process looks like, and so that you can be cared for the way that God intended. Let's look at verse 44. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. These people served by singing worship to God. They were staff, and they also operated off the tithes of the people. They were also neglected in Nehemiah 13. Verse 45. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. Now these served by physically protecting the city gates, which was much needed, especially come Nehemiah's time, once the attacks started getting planned against Nehemiah and his comrades. So, the next chunk are temple servants who served on staff. Let's read that now. Verse 46. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesufa, the sons of Toboath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, verse 48, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nagata, verse 51, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Bazai, the sons of Menum, the sons of Nephishishim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, verse 54, the sons of Bezlith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tema, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa. Appreciate that. Um, we're going to continue into Solomon, who also had servants on staff that he personally appointed during his reign. Let's read through that. Read through that with me. Verse 57. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephtiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabam, the sons of Ammon. And then the summary sentence in verse 60. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. By way of observation, many of these names are shared with different names of Israelite enemies throughout the years of Israel's history. 
And so that, I mean, generally we don't name our sons and daughters Judas or something like that, right? Um, so it would be kind of like that, right? So probably these were not Israelites, but maybe they would have been immigrants or maybe they would have been prisoners of war. But what's significant here is that even people who are servants, or in other words, slaves, by profession are named personally in God's kingdom. Also, looking at the total number of servants in verse 60, 392, and comparing that to the large number of families listed, this averages out to about eight or nine people per clan on average, per family clan. That's really small, even compared to the other families, especially compared to the other families earlier. And yet, they are still accounted for as people in God's kingdom who were faithful to move to Jerusalem. Even the smallest, most quote-unquote insignificant people are just as much members of God's house as the greatest of the leaders. Their listed here was Zerubbabel, who led them. Let's look at verse 61. The following were those who came up from Telmalah, Telharsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. But they could not prove their father's houses, nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So let's, let's pause there. So these are families from these towns who could not initially prove their Israelite identity. As we'll soon see later in this paragraph, there was a way to determine their descent after all. But we'll get there in a moment. For now, let's look at verse 62. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakata, 642. All three of these names were very common names. And they were claiming to be regular Israelites. But verse 63, that's a different story now. They're not just claiming to be regular Israelites. Verse 63, look at this. Also of the priests, so this is priests now. The sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. Now we don't hear about Hobiah or Barzillai again. Apparently for Barzillai, changing his name caused some issues, at least initially. But we don't know the result of that. There's no record of that. But Hakaz... He is a priestly family. First Chronicles chapter 10, 24 mentions him. That's from much earlier. And then apparently his sons and his family didn't keep proper documentation or what have you. Now, we know that he got reinstated because Ezra 8.33 says that his family ended up being priests after all. So that's a happy ending. And it turns out in Ezra and Nehemiah, Hakaz's family has a bit of a legacy. They were some of the families that did double portions of the wall repair in Nehemiah 3. So, at least for the family of Hakaz, it seems like they, were, they really were priests. They were just honest people who really were priests, heartily served the Lord, and just needed official confirmation that they were, in fact, sons of Aaron and were approved as such. Verses 64 to 65 explains how they determined this. Read those verses with me. Verse 64. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Verse 65, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So the governor at the time of this document would have been Zerubbabel, the leader of the first wave. But something to notice in verse 64, these people were excluded from the priesthood, but not from the community. They were only excluded from the priesthood. The only formal consequence for either group whether a supposed Israelite or a supposed priest is just the same for both. Priests have to wait. Leviticus 22.10 talks specifically about the most holy food, and it says only priests should eat it. 
And then plus, as we've already learned, if you weren't actually descended from Aaron and you tried to be a priest, you would die. So this is worth waiting for confirmation, right? Urim and Thummim, what is that? That's a goofy word, right? But these were objects used to ask God questions and to use his discernment throughout the Old Testament in a few kind of more or less random places of the Old Testament they're mentioned. They're not really expounded much upon, but we do find from Exodus 28.30 and Numbers 27.21 that they were used to ask God questions, discernment questions. So using the Urim and the Thummim was equivalent to asking God. And in this case, they were asking God, hey God, are they Israelites? And then he'd answer. And evidently God answered yes for Hakaz's family in verse 63. But let's say, hypothetically, the answer is no for someone. I think we can understand, okay, you don't want to be a priest if you're not a, uh, a verified descendant of Israel. You don't want to die. But what about just being an Israelite? Like, what would happen if you were actually told, well, you're not of Israelite lineage? What what, what happens in that situation? Certainly, at the very least, it would be disappointing to give up your life as you know it. You've built a house, you've gotten a new job, you've built a new family in exile, and then you uproot that family, travel all the way from exile back to Jerusalem, where it all started, eagerly wait in line to finally be registered in that first wave of people. You're pioneers of the faith, right? And then you find that your paperwork doesn't check out. Man, apart from the incredible inconvenience and disappointment that that would be. As someone in the Jewish culture, you'd also be concerned about those promises from Abraham through David. Oh no, am I gonna miss out on these blessings from the line of David? Am I excluded from God's chosen people now? Does that mean I'm removed from the community? Or worse, does that mean I can't be saved by God? I believe in him. Actually, you could still be fully welcomed into the Israelite community and receive all of those blessings. There's a number of passages that speak to this, but 2 Chronicles is one of them that's particularly relevant here. This will be on your screen. Now, 2 Chronicles 6 is Solomon's prayer of dedication to the first temple. Now, this is the second temple, the replacement of it, right? And this is what Solomon prays. I think this is pretty interesting. He prays this to God. Likewise, God, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, this house, that's the temple, the city he just built, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which your foreigner, which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So, God, when they come and pray to you for your name's sake, please answer them and please welcome them. Let's look at God's answer. 2 Chronicles 7, this is on your screen, verse 14. God responds, if my people, who are God's people? Well, here it is, who are called by my name. So it's more general than just Israelites. He's responding to this prayer, welcome the foreigner. So he says, look, if my people, whoever they are, who are called by my name, do this. Humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Forgive their sin, that's salvation. Heal their land, that's the promised land. They have it all. So Solomon prays, God, welcome the foreigner, welcome the non-Israelite. And God answers, I will, they will be welcomed here if they truly seek me. A few more texts that demonstrate the same thing are Exodus 12, 48, and Numbers 15, 15. But just to be clear, this is how the Old Covenant worked. 
And for us as New Covenant believers, we know that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ for both the Jew and the Gentile. In other words, both the Israelite and the non-Israelite. This is pretty typical New Testament language that's very explicit throughout. So for us, we don't often think about lineage much anymore, but that was how the Old Covenant worked. It went through those lines of those people that God gave those promises to. But even for the Old Covenant, this is often neglected in thinking about the Old Testament. Even in the Old Covenant, even in the Old Testament, foreigners who were not Israelites were welcomed into the commonwealth of Israel if they worshipped God. And so, verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now this number, this total here, 42,360, is basically the populations of Amherst and Hadley combined. And beside them, they brought with them basically the towns of Granbury and Shutesbury as servants. Imagine those four towns in the Pine Valley packed up, started their own society. That is pretty much what happened. This was a massive feat, and it was motivated by a massive trust in God, by regular, average, faithful believers, 42,000 of them. In verse 67, we see these servants and singers. They're, they're probably owned by the more wealthy returnees. Then there's livestock recorded in verses 68 and 69. So those, those are the totals. This is the mass of people that's coming. This is, again, this is the first wave. This document records those who came in the first wave. There were even more who came in the second and the third, under Ezra and then under Nehemiah. Well, let's look at verse 70. Let's continue reading this document from 100 years prior to Nehemiah's time. Verse 70. Now some of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. Something to notice here, these are not mandatory tithes that are required by Old Testament law. These tithes, there were tithes that were required by Old Testament law. For example, giving money to the Levites. But that's not what's going on here. Ezra 2.68, in the parallel passage I mentioned Ezra 2, is pretty much identical to Nehemiah 7. Ezra 2 makes this very explicit in the parallel passage. These were free will offerings. In the Old Testament, those were voluntary offerings. The reason this is significant is because the first temple, Solomon's temple that he prayed for that we read about in Chronicles, that was built from free will offerings as well. First Chronicles 29 tells us that. So the message God is communicating here is what I'm doing here is connected to what was happening before. The first temple was made in this certain way with free will offerings, and so is this one. It's a continuation. We also notice the governor, Governor Zerubbabel, he was a good leader. He didn't hesitate to lead the way in giving, and even giving substantially. Out of about 42,000 people, he alone gave 2.5% of the total amount. That's a lot. 
The heads of the households, these were probably wealthy leaders if they're heads of the households. They also gave, and about half of the total sum is what their giving amounted to. But I think this is pretty remarkable. The rest of the people, they gave just as much as the wealthy heads of households gave. They make up another half of the total donations. Again, the regular, average, faithful people of God, that's the rest of the people, they contributed just as much as the major figures. The kingdom of God is built by leaders, yes, but just as much it is built by regular, average, faithful believers like you and me. Now, unfortunately, although there was some initial generosity on this part, this is pretty encouraging, right? This is, they're being generous. The prophet Haggai shortly thereafter rebukes them, and Haggai gives us some timelines of when in the kingly line he came, and so Nehemiah and Ezra do the same thing, so we can pretty much know the timeline. After this donation, Haggai calls out these people sometime later for selfishly tending to their own homes while God's house continues to lie in ruins. That's Haggai 1, verses 4 and 6. So in the first wave, they showed up, but then there was some persecution, they were, they were discouraged, and they stopped building. And God's like, what are you doing? Guys, come on. And Haggai 1 is a part of that encouragement to continue building. And God rebukes these people for ceasing to be generous and instead tending to their own homes while the temple lies continually in ruins at that point. Seemingly, these Israelites stopped giving to the project after some initial excitement. Maybe an application for us today, um, I think maybe a parallel situation. Cindy, our treasurer, the other um, summit or so, shared with us that although our church approved a budget plan that required, on average, each member to increase giving by about $75 a month, only a handful of us have actually done that. And so maybe Haggai's calling us out too. And so let us be reminded, by myself included, because I didn't do that either, just admittedly. I need to do that. And I did approve the budget too. So shame on me. But initial generosity, that's well and good. But consistent and determined generosity is what God uses to accomplish his work. So maybe with me, you can repent with me, and we can add some donations per month so that we can meet the goals that we set as a church. And so that we can be different than the Israelites were here in that first wave. Verse 73, our last verse. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now remember verse 4. None of the houses within Jerusalem had been rebuilt yet. So yes, they're back in their homeland, but they're back in their original towns from 70 years ago without homes yet. At least when this record was written. And so began the restoration of Jerusalem under Zerubbabel in the first wave. They were back in the land of promise. They were not established, but they had arrived. But now, at the time of Nehemiah, they were about to be established. They enrolled themselves in a genealogy. That's what chapter 7 is dedicated to. And now it's time to establish the society, right? Now, the second half of the book of Nehemiah, this is kind of the pivot point. Now we're going into the second half. And that second half is how 
Nehemiah and Ezra establish society in Jerusalem. And the very next event in Nehemiah 8 is that they bring Ezra to read the Bible in the city. So they're going to build the society upon the word of God. That's where we're going. But I want to point out a significant parallel between Ezra and Nehemiah at this point. And so remember, Ezra 2 is a parallel passage. Right after this list of returnees in Ezra 2, this is what Ezra records. This will be on your screens. Chapter 3 of Ezra, verses 1 and 2. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, that's familiar, the people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. So that's the document. And then Ezra goes into Ezra's real time. Verse 2 is summarized by, they built the altar, is basically what that's saying. So in Ezra, the genealogy has been recorded, and then it's time to build the altar. In Nehemiah, the genealogy has been recorded, and now it's time to gather the people around the word of God. That's the next step. So look at the similarity, though, uh, between Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm going to read Nehemiah uh, 73, the second half of verse 73, and we're going to leak into chapter 8. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And then verse 2, read this with me in chapter 8. This is significant. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Now, eight verse, chapter 8 verse 2 is saying it's the first day of the seventh month, but by chapter 8, we're back in Nehemiah's time. So we're not reading that old document anymore. By the way, that old document was also from the first day of the seventh month, from about 100 years ago, yes, but it's the same day of the year. Many years apart, but it's the same day of the year. God is showing continuity between that first wave when they built the temple and that third wave when they built the wall. He orchestrated it so that it would happen the same day of the year. I think that's pretty cool. It's a hint, I think. But more, even more than that, more than continuity between wave one and three, God's showing continuity between the first Jerusalem and this Jerusalem. God is basically saying, I've kept my promises to these people. I have been continuously with them, and this temple and this city indeed is my city that I care for. God kept his promises to his people, and Nehemiah's wall was part of that. But then fast forward, God went through all these pains to prove his faithfulness to his people, right? Then many years later in AD 70, Jerusalem gets sacked again, this time by the Romans. It's destroyed and it's leveled. What gives, God? There were a lot of people who thought God had abandoned them for good at that point. But in the same way that Nehemiah pointed back to old Jerusalem, so Nehemiah also points forward to our new Jerusalem. Here's the vision. This is where we're headed. This is where heaven is going to be. This is the vision Jesus gives the Apostle John of the city of New Jerusalem. I'm getting this from Revelation chapter 21. Here's just a, a list of things about it. It's not going to be made from human hands because it will instantaneously descend out of heaven. Revelation 21.10. There's no building project. God just descends it. It's a perfect cube with its length, width, and height equal to the distance from here in Amherst to Kansas City. Revelation 21.16. That's a big city. That's a big cube. 
Its walls will not be rebuilt out of the rubble from past defeats like Nehemiah's wall was. No, its walls will be made of jasper, Revelation 21, 18, and its streets will be made of pure gold, Revelation 21, 21. There will be no temple to offer sacrifices for our sins anymore, which was needed in the Old Covenant. But why? Because Jesus has already been sacrificed for our sins, and instead of a physical temple, God himself dwells in that city, Revelation 21, 22. There will be no more sun or moon in that new Jerusalem because God's glory will illuminate the entire cube, Revelation 21, 23. All the nations are going to be there, not just Israel and several of the foreigners, Revelation 21, 24. The gates will never be closed, unlike Nehemiah who needed gatekeepers, Revelation 21, 25, because the only ones who are able to enter are those who are listed in the book of life, Revelation 21, 27. And that book of life is the last genealogy. After exile, a long exile, we will return home to new Jerusalem. And the king of this new Jerusalem is a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Israel, and of David. It's Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' genealogy is recorded both on his mother's side and his father's side in Luke 3 and Matthew 1. God went through some great pains and great efforts to show that he is indeed of the promises. And now that Jesus has lived on earth and died on the cross, he has fulfilled the requirements of that old covenant and has now ratified a new one. And this is why we take communion every week. This is why Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He also says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is a replacement of the old covenant. Jesus made a new one. It's not about your genealogy or your descendants. It's not about living a perfect life, which is a good thing because likely most of us aren't related to King David. And even if we are, none of us has definitely lived a perfect life. But Jesus did all of that for you already. And so now, this John 3, 16, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life in the eternal Jerusalem, worshiping him. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to consider believing in Jesus, who invites you to enjoy him forever in that new Jerusalem. Plus, the alternative to that is eternal punishment for refusing to worship King Jesus. And I want to spare you that. So, I want to encourage you to believe in him today. At this time, we're going to get ready to take communion. This is a time where we remember Jesus' death for our sake. If you're not a Christian, we're, we're really glad you're here. I hope you feel welcomed here. But at this time, I want to encourage you to think and pray about what you're hearing and not come up to take communion because this is something that we do to remember Christ's death for us because we believe in him. Now, there will be people in the back, myself included, ready to pray for you. That's for Christians and non-Christians alike. There's also time for reflection considering where you're at. I'll be back there with a few others. We'd love to pray for you. And if you are a Christian, I invite you to come on up to the table remembering Jesus' sacrifice for you. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your old covenant, and we thank you for perfectly fulfilling it. We thank you for memorializing normal average Christians, God. And we thank you that we are among those number that are named in the permanent genealogy of the book of life, God. We thank you for that. 
We thank you, God, for making us wiser for salvation in Christ Jesus, Lord. And thank you now that we get to take communion to remember how you made that possible for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So the way communion works is you'll get up get from your seats and make two rows forming down here. Grab the communion and the juice and then circle back around. Come back to your seat. You don't need to wait for a prompt. You can just do that whenever you're ready. Again, I'll be in the back with several others ready to pray for you, whoever wants that. Let's do that now.